This is the story. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands have just marked for salvation. Well, good morning. I feel like Superman. But here we are. What an awesome morning. We love coming together. We love our summer schedule. Our staff loves it. I think everybody but Shannon loves it uh, because it wreaks havoc on the children's schedule. But man, it's so fun to be in here with a full room and to worship together. And so we're so grateful uh, that you've made it this morning. Well, growing up, our family didn't watch much television. And part of that reason was because we didn't own a television. And so uh, it wasn't because my parents were the fanatical uh, evangelicals that thought that television was evil. It was just uh, they thought there were better things to do with our time. But every now and then, uh, I'd be able to get away to my buddy's house at 4 o'clock and watch The Incredible Hulk. Remember that? And then at 7 o'clock on Friday evenings, if we could get to Grandpa's house, we'd watch The Dukes of Hazard, which was about the raciest thing that you could watch on television at the time. But every now and then, we would catch uh, reruns of the show Bewitched. You guys remember Bewitched? What a great show. It ran in the late 60s and then early 70s. I think it started out as black and white and then eventually made it into color. And most of the uh, time that we watch it, most of my memories would have been, in fact, through reruns. This is the story of Samantha, and she falls in love with the New York, you know, New York ad executive. His name was Darren Stevens. And you remember that uh, she thought she was the luckiest gal alive in the first episode when they get married. And then... Poor Darren quickly finds out that Sam is a part of a secret society of witches and warlocks. And with the twitch of her nose, with the wiggle of her nose, she can do all kinds of magical things. Uh, even now and then, uh, every now and then my wife will walk into a, a cluttered room and she'll say, I wish I could just wiggle my nose. And she's referring to uh, Sam and her ability to do magic with her nose. Now there was nothing really startling. There was nothing offensive about this show. In fact, uh, a lot of times there was a moral uplifting uh, theme behind what was going on. <laughs> Um, the fact of the matter was, though, that there were witches and warlocks, and a lot of people were disguised in this movie as part of um, beings from a supernatural world. Now, again, uh, all of this was simply fantasy. A lot of it was entertainment. Now, you may remember a couple weeks ago on Mother's Day, Brad said, hey, we're not going to teach on demon possession this week. We're going to save it for a couple weeks. Well, lucky me, here we are this morning, the chance to talk about this. I was doing the math when he figured that out, and I think it had less to do with the fact that it was Mother's Day and just his desire to dump it on me. We're going to have a lot of fun with this this morning. I, was going, I went back and made a list of all these areas, all these TV shows, all these movies that I could think of, and there, there's a lot more than what I've listed, um, that deal with the supernatural, that deal with uh, a spiritual world, that deal with beings that aren't human beings. Do you guys remember Buffy the Vampire Slayer? You remember that one? It wasn't too long ago. Then there was Charmed, uh, the trio of witches. There was Touched by an Angel. Uh, listen, Touched by an Angel, we loved it as Christians. It really screwed up all of our theology, though, because it was very um, unscripturally sound. Uh, there were the X-Files. That show had cosmic implications. There was the American Horror Story. Do you remember that? Then there was this show called The Dr. Oz Show. You, yeah, do you remember? But listen, I'm serious. Do you remember the Long Island medium that he would have come in and could talk to dead people? And so if someone came in and you were um, sick or depressed or unhappy, uh, this medium could put you in touch uh, with your dead relatives. Then there were some movies. The Exorcist. I hated The Exorcist. Um, the Omen. The scariest movie I've ever watched in my entire life. I watched five minutes of it. I still have nightmares. Poltergeist. You guys remember that? 
Um, 20 years ago, there was the sixth sense. Uh, my wife loved it. I hated it. I scared to death. I hated the sixth sense. The exorcism of Emily Rose. We had the conjuring. And, and then there's some kids' movies. Now, now again, I'm not, I'm not railing against these movies, but they're just dealing with the, uh, the supernatural. There was Oz the Great and Powerful. There was Paranorman. And then there was, is it Maleficent? Uh, all these movies that deal with the supernatural. Now, it's not just confined to TV shows and to movies. But before they were movies, there was the Harry Potter series, and there was the Twilight series, and then they became blockbuster movies at some point. And the, uh, the internet has uh, it's become a storehouse of resources for occult practices, and there's, there's blogs and online gaming and Pinterest boards and tutorials on YouTube. Listen, our uh, society, our culture has become fascinated with this fight of good versus evil and, and how it plays out in the dynamics of this underworld and all these spiritual beings that inhabit it. Now, most of the viewers and most of the times when we have viewed these things, uh, we see them as pure fantasy. And I would be the first to tell you that the way that the invisible world is portrayed in all of these movies, all these forms of entertainment, in almost all the cases is pure fantasy. But I would also be the first to tell you that the reality from which these fantasies arise is rock-solid biblical truth. And so whether or not a gifted sophomore can slay a vampire is really not the scriptural question this morning. Whether or not evil and evil entities existed and interacted with human history, that's the question this morning. And the Bible says emphatically that the answer is yes. There is an invisible world, and it's very, very real. And so we are going to continue in our series this morning. You can turn to Mark chapter 5. But the number one basic truth that we have to be convinced of, even before we launch into this passage, is that the invisible world is just as real as the visible world. Paul said that in Ephesians chapter 6. He said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities of darkness. The evidence is all throughout Scripture. It's not an isolated reference here or there. It's everywhere. If the spiritual world of angels and demons is not a reality, then neither is the Bible. And so here we are in Mark chapter 5, and we're presented a man this morning that has a legion of demons. You could call this the story really of the tombstone terrorist because this demon-possessed man literally haunted the graveyard. That's where he lived. It's one of the biblical encounters that um, I first heard about in Sunday school of all places. It was a very real, real story. Now, now listen, in Mark chapter 5, there's 20 verses that we're going to focus on this morning. And I'm telling you that there's three or four or five messages that could be taught out of this passage of Scripture. Don't worry. Uh, I'm not going to land on them all. Uh, one of the things that we uh, aim for, that Pastor Brad asks us to shoot for, uh, that Kyle plans the service around, is a 37-minute sermon. And so that literally is what we uh, push for each week. And I know for 37 minutes, I need 4,000 words in my notes. And at the first pass this week, I had 12,800 words. I kid you not. And so this morning, praise God, there's more in the cutting room floor than there are in my notes. But um, fascinating nonetheless. We're not going to answer every question that comes up in this passage. I'm sure that this will uh, in, uh, start a lot of conversations. But um, here we go in Mark chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, They, the disciples, came to the other side of the sea to the country of Gerasenes. Now real quickly, let's time out here. Um, we need to really go back to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4 where this story starts. So Jesus is on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And, and he's literally, the, the life is being sucked out of him. All these people need him and want him and they're clamoring for him. And he needs to get away from it all. And so they jump into a boat. He and the disciples jump into a boat late in the evening. Now it was more than likely a little sailboat. 
uh, that was crossing the sea. It probably had oars of some, some sort. Now, there's an interesting phenomenon about the Sea of Galilee. It's a very shallow lake. And storms are known to whip up out of nowhere and create just these monster storms and monster waves. And here Jesus is passed out. He's exhausted in the bow of this boat. And the boat starts taking on water. And the, de- uh, the demons, the disciples, excuse me, uh, become convinced that they are about to die. The word there in the original text was phobia. It's where we get our word phobia. They're absolutely terrified. And so they finally wake up Jesus. And Jesus shows that he's the master of the physical world by calming the storm. And so now we find ourselves in verse 1. They make it to the other side of the lake. They get to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, this man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs. And no one uh, could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day amongst the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Listen, everything about this story this morning is a little bizarre. But before we look at the details of this text, there's an underlying issue that we have to address. Because a lot of people have said what's happening here is that they're kind of downplay the reality of the demonic and the demonic world, calling it that this is just a story that's symbolic of evil in our world today. Now others see this story, if you were to read some commentators, they believe that this is really just an ancient way of saying that this man had a severe mental illness. But listen, we cannot say that. That's not what the text says this morning. Demon possession was real to this man, and it was real to Jesus. And the point of this story, however bizarre it is, is presented as a sober reality this morning, and that's how we have to take it. And so to say that Jesus came and and cured, in this case, uh, someone that was mentally ill, completely misses the point and robs the story of its primary meaning. This is not a story of Jesus curing mental illness. It's a story about Jesus defeating the demons. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book a long time ago called True Spirituality. Now, if you know anything about Francis Schaeffer, um, I'm not trying to name drop and act like I'm smart. He actually, I had to read him a lot uh, in college, and I think that was the last time I read anything that he wrote because he's so smart, I can't even really understand him. But he wrote something in this book, uh, True Spirituality, that makes a little bit bit of sense. He says that um, there's a certain amount of content that fits into the material world. There's flesh and blood and, and birds and, and, and animals and skies and, and planets. And all of that fits into the material world. And, and then there's a parallel connect, which is the spiritual world. And that's filled with demons and souls and angels. And then Schaefer suggests that there's actually a connection or an arch between these two worlds. And we're literally living between those two realities in that connection. There's a phenomenal, a fantastic book out by Chip Ingram... And if you are um, excited about this subject or you're intrigued by this subject or maybe you're battling something that you hear today, um, you need to get this book called The Invisible War. It's really the go-to book on this subject. He writes that in many modern cultures, Satan's existence is pretty well known and pretty easily seen. He said that Western culture's reluctance to acknowledge his presence can be attributed to the fact that Satan has disguised himself so well. When we travel to Guatemala, to the remote regions, to the remote Mayan villages, they see demon possession there. They see, can tell stories of it that we can't tell here in our Western culture. If you go to parts of, of Asia, a lot of parts of Africa, if you go to Haiti and you were to read this story, they would nod their head and, and know exactly what we're talking about because what seems alien to us is commonplace to them. But somehow Satan has convinced us that he's a cartoon character. Think about this. 
We even do it, we, we dress up as Satan at, at uh, Halloween in, in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork. And listen, that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to think that he's a cartoon. Uh, to think that maybe he's a mascot, a red devil, or a blue devil, or, or a sun devil. Or, or maybe he's convinced us that he's a metaphor for evil, that he's the dark side of the force. Metaphors are hard to confront in prayer, and so it's in his best interest to convince us that he's just a figment of our imagination. So here Jesus is, he's in this region of Gerasenes, he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and he's come to this area to seek uh, rest and relief from all the crowds. Now as we walk through this narrative this morning, it breaks up nicely into four different parts. And so there's four parts or four requests that are made of Jesus, four pleas uh, towards Jesus, four prayers this morning that we're going to uh, break down. And so the first prayer um, starts this section in verse uh, number five, night and day amongst the tombs and on the mountains, this man was crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. Now listen, we don't have any idea why this unfortunate man uh, was infested with these demons. The Bible doesn't say it's useless to speculate. Uh, some people say that demon possession is a result of certain types of sinful activity. That may be true, but the Bible never really lists a specific set of sin, uh, sins or sin uh, associated with demon possession. So the Bible doesn't answer that, that question. But what we know for certain is that demons are spirit beings that were created by God. They were created by God to serve him. They were originally good angels. And unlike human beings, they had seen God in all of his glory. They, they had seen God fully reveal. His awesomeness was fully revealed to them. They worshipped God and God alone. And the greatest of these angels was Lucifer. He was created perfect. We see that in Ezekiel. Uh, he had his own home in heaven. Uh, we read about that in uh, Jude. And his job was to be the guardian of God's glory. There was nothing that had, no other created being that had the power that Lucifer had. He was more beautiful than anything or anyone but God. And these were the attributes that led to his fall. See, the occasion of his sin was his rebellion against God. It was his pride. And he and his followers made a conscious choice. They made a purposeful choice. Satan's prideful rebellion is characterized in Isaiah chapter 14 by five I will statements. Now Isaiah chapter 14 was originally um, talking about the king of Babylon, but it had a parallel meaning or a double meaning, and Jesus actually quoted this passage later referring to Satan. These five I will, Satan said, I will ascend to heaven. He literally wanted to live where God lived. He said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. In, in the Bible, the stars uh, refer to the angels, and he wanted all the angels to worship him and him alone. He said, I will sit on the mount of assembly. Satan wanted the highest position of authority. He said, I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. This is his way of saying that he wanted um, God's glory all for himself, and he didn't want to share it with anyone. And then he said, I will make myself like the most high. This was his ultimate goal. He wanted to replace God and receive all of the beauty and the wisdom and the majesty and the power of God. Listen, when uh, scripture speaks of Satan, it's not isolated to just a few different verses, a few different chapters. It's all throughout the Bible. Listen, Satan is not a metaphor for evil. He is a powerful angel who commit, committed treason against the most high God and then convinced a third of the angels to rebel along with him. Listen, this was the ultimate betrayal. They had seen God in all his glory. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew better. 
Unlike, to human, unlike human beings, they don't have a, a sinful disp- disposition causing them uh, to want to sin. And knowing full well the consequences of their actions, they attempted this coup. And consequently, God threw them out of heaven. And he sentenced them to a future punishment of being thrown into an eternal abyss. Now, some of the angels were actually immediately sentenced They were immediately bound and thrown into this lake of fire. But according to Revelation 20, the rest of them were sentenced to receive their punishment at a future time. And so in the meantime, these demons, they are powerful spirit beings. And they now serve Satan and all his evil purposes. They seek to destroy all that is good. They seek to destroy everything that's good in your life, everything that's good in my life, everything that's good here at this God-ordained church. And their strategy ever since the fall has been to uh, tempt us with the same agenda that led Satan to rebel in the first place. And that was the desire to be like God. And when these demons infested this poor man, they drove him from society. They gave him incredible physical power. They caused him personal torment. It says that they put chains and shackles on him for his own good. And he couldn't be uh, constrained. They put a guard over, over him uh, to guard him and to guard the people that had come into this graveyard. And the guard couldn't restrain him. The demons caused the man to act in these increasingly bizarre ways. That they, uh, to the to point that he would terrorize the people living uh, or, or terrorize the people that were coming into this graveyard. The people that he encountered. Listen, he was wild. He was dangerous. He was naked. He was tormented. He was isolated. And he was violent. And no one could help this man. He couldn't even help himself. He'd been like this for a long, long time. Like, humanly speaking, this is the most hopeless case of anyone in the Bible. It's the most severe case of demon possession in the entire Bible. It was extreme then, it was extreme uh, now. It was so extreme, and and it caught the disciples' attention so much that three of them recorded it in their Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, Luke uh, later wrote that this man was driven by demons, that his personality was somehow under demonic control. Like evidently these attacks, they would come and they would go, and and when he was under this demonic control, he acted in an irrational and dangerous manner. But the most shocking part, of this entire narrative this morning is when this man and these demons encounter Jesus. Because they know exactly who Jesus was. There's no debate who the real Jesus is here. Look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus, this man from afar, he ran to him and fell down before him. The word there in the original language is proscunio. It's the word that we use for worship. But they didn't come to worship, but they came and reverently bowed down. And crying out with a loud voice, this demon said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. Now look at the irony here. Do you remember what the point of the Gospel of Mark is? It was written to the Gentiles, to the Roman Gentiles. And the point of the Gospel was to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. And yet here we are, five chapters deep into this book, and a human being has yet to give testimony to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. The only beings giving testimony so far, and really throughout the rest of the book, are the demons The demons are the only ones testifying that Jesus is the Son Son of God. It's not until the end of the book when we meet the Roman centurion that he steps back at the crucifixion. He says, truly, this was the Son of God. So the demons come before Jesus and they bow down and he, he asks Jesus not to torture him. Listen, demons are not atheists. Okay, They fear Jesus even though they don't worship him. And so this is the first plea or the first prayer that we see. Uh, The demon begs Jesus, please do not torment me. 
Remember what we said earlier uh, about these fallen angels. They were sentenced to this pit of torment or the, the abyss. And here the immediate plea to Jesus is to not to send them there prematurely. prematurely. Clearly this demon believed that Jesus had the power to send them straight to hell. And so he begs Jesus, please, son of the most high God, do not send me to hell. And then this next section, so the man, really the demon controlling the man is running towards Jesus. Jesus is, uh, or the man uh, is begging Jesus not to be tortured. In verse 8, for Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus paused and asked him, he said, what is your name? The man replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there in the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And so this second request, this prayer this morning was, send us to the pigs. You see, when Jesus commands the evil spirits to come out, they know they have to obey him. What happens next, next is a round of negotiations between Jesus and the demons. Um, first, Jesus asks the demons uh, who, who speak through this man, he says, what is your name? Now, this was more than just a, a simple request for identification. It, really, Jesus is saying, do you know who you are? And this demon, uh, through this man, answers. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Evidently, one demon was speaking on behalf of all the spirits within this man. Note the change from singular, my name is, to plural, for we are. The word legion literally referred to a Roman unit of, um, in, in the army that had 6,000 soldiers in it. And so it wasn't necessarily saying that he had 6,000 demons, but what he's uh, been saying here is, I'm so full of demons that I don't know who I am. This invading army had taken over his personality, and that's all this man knows. We have no idea how he ended up with thousands of demons. The text doesn't say. Evidently, it doesn't uh, really matter for the point of this story. But the demons, when they realize that they're about to be cast out, they beg to be sent to the pigs. I, I, I love this. I wrote down in my notes, note that the demons must ask permission of Jesus before they can enter the pigs. Listen, Satan is a created being who can do nothing without God's permission. In this story, we see that Jesus has absolute power over what the demons do and where they can go. The miracle itself actually takes place pretty quickly. At the command of Jesus, the demons leave this man. He regains his sanity. The demons enter the pigs. The pigs rush down the steep bank into the water where they drowned. We believe this is in the town of Kursai. You can go there. Uh, you can actually see this area where we believe that this happened. Now, now, the text raises a couple questions for me as I'm studying this week. Like, why did the demons ask to be sent to, into the pigs? The text doesn't answer that question. And, and then the bigger question is, well, like, why would Jesus agree to this plan? Like, why send the demons into the pigs? Why not just send them straight to the abyss? Like, who in here hasn't wished they had the power to send somebody or, or something straight to hell? And Jesus has that power, and yet the text, it, it doesn't happen this morning. We don't know why. But this much is clear. The point of the story is not for Jesus to destroy the demons, but to deliver the demonized man from their power. The pigs are really secondary. Jesus is providing proof positive that the demons have left this man. And so the townspeople come and they see the carcasses floating in the lake. And when they see this man clothed in his right mind, no one could deny what had happened. That brings us to the next plea or the next prayer. The miracle's over. 
The demons have left the man. The pigs are floating in the water. The demons are nowhere to be found. Now don't come to me afterwards and ask where the demons went after the pigs drowned because, again, text doesn't tell us this morning, but don't miss the point here. Jesus has proved that he is the absolute master of the spirit world. Just a few verses earlier, he proved that he's the absolute master of the physical world. Surely, Jesus is the Son of God. But surprisingly, this miracle is not greeted with approval. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who'd had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those had, who had seen it described to them uh, what had happened to this demon-possessed man and the pigs. They, they, they were afraid, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And so people from all over came to see this mess. Like this was a train wreck of absolutely epic proportions. And verse 15 says that when they saw Jesus, uh, and they saw this mangled mess of pigs, and when they saw this man, they were afraid. Again, this is the word phobio, uh, for our word phobia, terrified out of their minds. They were frightened of Jesus. And so we see prayer number three. It says, they say, leave us alone. Now listen, you would think that they would be grateful that this dangerous man had been healed, that he'd been cured, that he was fully clothed, that he was in his right mind, that he'd been delivered by Jesus Christ. But verse 17, I believe, is the saddest verse in all of Scripture. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. There's no evidence that Jesus ever came back to that town. Jesus came to bring life, and they chose death. He came to uh, bring freedom, and they chose bondage. He came to bring light, and they chose darkness. This man they called crazy was now perfectly normal. This man who had run around naked was now fully clothed. The man who broke his chains is now sitting at the feet quietly of Jesus. And the man who once had a legion of demons now is in his right mind. And the townspeople didn't like the fact that Christ had disturbed their status quo. And they decided they would rather have a few crazies running around than to have any more of their property destroyed. Now it's easy to make them look bad. But when we think about it, maybe some of us have done the exact same thing. Many people come to Jesus as long as Jesus keeps his distance. But when Jesus gets too close to us, we get a little uncomfortable. See, we want the gentle Jesus. We don't want uh, the, the, the Jesus, the powerful Jesus from the Gospels. We want the marble Jesus that we can rub his head for good luck and we can shove him in our pocket. But we don't want the Jesus that demands our total allegiance. We want the gentle Jesus that builds our self-esteem and makes us happy. We want the Jesus that promises us uh, that we'll go to heaven someday. But we don't want the Jesus that demands that we take up the cross and follow him. And more than a few people today hear the gospel and then say, well, if Jesus were to come into my life, then something would have to go, and I'm really not ready to let go of anything. The people who came to investigate this miracle asked Jesus to leave because he was bad for business. And they were right. When Jesus comes into your life, your life will never be the same again. Now we come to the end of the story. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might stay with him. And Jesus did not permit this, but said to this man, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And this man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis region how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Look at this last prayer, this last 
plea of Jesus, let me come with you. Think about the various prayers in this passage. Jesus grants the request of the demons and he sends them into the pigs. And he grants the request of the people. He actually leaves their city. But he refused the request of this new convert. He didn't allow the man to come with him. See, Jesus knew it was better for this man to stay there amongst his own people. Like this man needed his people and his people needed him. First grade, I was introduced by my uh, teacher, Mrs. Starcher, to this phenomena called show and tell. Remember that? You could bring your BB guns and your knives and all kinds of cool things to school to show it off. You wouldn't dare to let our kids do that today, right? Story recently, somebody told me of a, uh, one of his sons put a battle axe in his backpack to take to school for show and tell. And it's like, no, you can't do that anymore. But that's what Jesus says here. He says, go and tell. Go to the people you know best and tell them the thing that you know best. Tell them what God has done for you. Jesus did a kind thing, leaving this man behind. This man would be a living reminder of God's power. And this is where all missionary outreach starts. Start where you are and tell what you know. Go and tell. So you don't have to learn a lot of verses. You don't have to memorize a complicated outline. You don't have to be a good speaker with a winsome personality. You don't have to get permission to tell your story. You don't have to write a book. You don't have to write a sermon. You don't have to have a really big audience. You can start with one person. Go and tell. This gospel narrative this morning reminds us that no evil habit is beyond the power of Jesus. This week, uh, my family encountered some evil people, and it's really easy for us to get into this thinking that says, these people are so heinous in their lifestyle that they're beyond God's grace. And what a wonderful reminder this morning that no one is beyond his forgiveness. No human situation is beyond his healing touch. Now listen, I have no doubt that this man's desire to leave with Jesus was sincere. Like he was probably freaked out. Like if you leave Jesus, like where are these demons that are going to come back? Maybe they'll come into my life again. This, this man understood more than anybody that Satan was real. And since Satan's schemes here in our modern Western culture don't typically play out like they did in scriptures that we've studied this morning, I wonder if practically speaking... If we've been lulled into forgetting that the prince of darkness is here to destroy everything good in our lives. When was the last time that you honestly considered that some struggle or some relational conflict that you were having had its roots in satanic oppression? I know that some people carry this concept a little too far. Like there's a chocolate demon inside of every little fat boy. Like um, when I get a flat tire, it was the flat tire demon. Uh, when, when I burn my steaks in the grill, it was the uh, my grill is too hot demon. Or, or, or the lady that uh, showed up late every day at work. She never did good work. She, she was a pain to be around. And when she got fired, she blamed it on spiritual warfare. I'm not referring to the extremes here. I'm not talking about uh, people that think there's a demon behind every bush. I'm talking about regular, ordinary people who love God and have normal conflicts and struggles. Like using good, biblical common sense. When was the last time that something happened to you that you really couldn't explain any other way? Like maybe there was a relationship of somebody that you know and that you love and then suddenly all of a, out of nowhere things go south. Maybe you were part of a church or there was a godly leader that had an incredible influence on your life. And then out of nowhere, this boiling controversy erupts. And it gets so bad that you can't even go back and really put your finger on where it started. Or maybe that 
You have a sense of oppression or depression. And yet your life circumstances, nothing has really changed. And when things are amiss, do you just chalk it up as like bad luck or human nature? Or do you really consider whether or not there's spiritual conflict going on behind the scenes? There's a couple lessons we've learned today that were kind of weaved into this storyline. And let's kind of review these and then conclude with one awesome reminder. And the first thing uh, that we see in this story is that there is an invisible world. There's an invisible world. Go home today and read 2 Kings chapter 6. I I love that story. It's a story of Elisha. And Elisha is really, um, he's become a spy against the bad king. And the king figures this out, and so a show of brute force, one night he surrounds Elisha's hut with an entire army. And in the morning, Elisha's servant goes out and he throws open the curtains, and he looks out and he sees this uh, overwhelming army, and he stutters. He's like, did you see what's going on out there, Elisha? And he turns around, Elisha, and Elisha's on his knees praying. And he's praying that God would open the eyes of his servant so that his servant could see the invisible world. And God grants his request, and the servant steps outside, and he sees all throughout the mountains the God of angel armies there to protect them. Paul agreed with this in Ephesians chapter 6 when he wrote that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil. There is an invisible world. Second point that we need to be reminded of this morning is that we're involved in an invisible war. Paul stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that even though we walk around in the flesh, in other words, we live in the physical world, we're actually fighting in a spiritual war and our weapons have divine power. We're involved in an invisible war. And last but not least, our foe is formidable. Listen, I'm not kidding you when I tell you that Pastor Brad said we're going to teach on demons in two weeks and I'm going to be on vacation and so it's you, Chris. Uh, I was a little nervous. I'm not going to lie. And and if I could step up here this morning and give you the list of all the things that have gone wrong in the last couple days to distract us or to overwhelm us. Last night the power went out in this building at 4 o'clock. A tree somewhere went down. It crushed one of the power lines. We have three power lines coming into our church. The worst thing that could happen is to lose one. It's better to lose all three because what happens is all the equipment tries to still work. And so this morning we came in and several of our uh, HVAC units are blown up. If you came in and tried to go up the elevator, the elevator was blown up. Last night the baptistry wasn't working. The sound system uh, literally was going nuts. I talked to Pastor Eber this morning. Pastor Eber's at LHC Espanol teaching through the same message this morning. He said, Chris, you're not going to believe it. This morning, before I could even get out of bed, I got three phone calls from three different families that had trauma going on in their lives of, uh, of epic proportion that needed me and my attention right now. It's not bad luck. It's not human chance. There there is an invisible war going on, and our foe is formidable. Listen, the chains and shackles could not contain this tombstone terrorist. Mark wrote that no one had the strength to subdue this man. Satan is a formidable foe. Grew up going to Cedar Point, and I have a memory. They had a a little zoo there of some sorts, and they had lions back in the day. And we would love going there at feeding time. And at feeding time, at 4.30 or 5 o'clock, they would throw these lions, these, these big slabs of raw meat. And you would see the ferociousness of these lions. And that's the word picture that Peter gives us in 1 Peter 5.8 when he says, Satan's like a roaring lion who roams about looking for someone to devour. Now listen, it's 
tempting to look at this list and to be overcome with a sense of defeat. But here's what I want you to walk out of here with this morning. The understanding that we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. Listen, Satan's a defeated foe because of what Jesus did when he destroyed the works of the devil. Listen, we are victors in Christ. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus have won for us everything we need in this battle. Listen, when we give our lives to Jesus, Satan no longer has the authority to possess us. Okay, this man never needed to worry again about demons coming into his life and possessing him. Now, Christians can be demon-oppressed, but as Christ followers, we can never be demon-possessed. And when we're oppressed, we have the power and we have the resources to resist Satan and his demonic attacks. The half-brother of Jesus, the apostle James, encouraged the church when he said, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He didn't say submit to God, resist the devil, and then run like mad to get away. He said the devil's going to run away from you. And that happens because of what John wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, when he said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I'm closing this morning. I'm going to tell you a story to kind of wrap all this up. I'm going to be a little vulnerable this morning. I'm going to share something with you that's a little embarrassing. If you were to ask Shannon, she would tell you that I am scared Scary movies. I hate scary movies like Poltergeist, The Sixth Sense. And this movies freak me out. And so my friends, we go on vacation with them every year. We've been doing it for years and years. And every year they got to tell the story to my kids about the time when we were kids and we decided late at night to go watch The Pet Cemetery. Okay, now I had no idea that The Pet Cemetery was part of the book written by Stephen King. I would have never, like I'm smart enough to know I don't like Stephen King. And so we got about a third of the way through the movie, and I have a couch cushion over my head, and I can't block the scary sound, the scary music. Um, I can't block the darkness of the movie. If you hate scary movies, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so finally, I excused myself to go upstairs to go to the bathroom. Now, the irony here is that there's a bathroom right there in the living room that we are uh, right beside the living room in the basement where we were watching this movie. But my friends knew that I was chicken and that I was going upstairs to hang out with his parents. But when I got upstairs, it was midnight, and his parents had already gone to bed. And so I thought it was a little creepy for me to go knock on their door and like say, Chris is scared. So I did the next best thing. I threw open the front door, and they lived in the middle of a forest. Okay, And there was no lights, there was no moon, and, and I think my house was e either 10 miles away, maybe it was a quarter of a mile, but it felt like 10 miles, and, and I set speed records getting to my house. And when I got to my house, I dove fully clothed under my covers, and I woke up the next morning with the covers over the top of my head. Listen, I hate scary movies. But have you ever watched a rerun of a scary movie? Like every now and then I'm flipping through channels and I'll see the Pet cemetery. I'm like, this is stupid. Like, it's not scary because I know how the movie ends. Listen, the scary music doesn't have quite the same edge. I know when the bad guy is about to jump out of the shadows. I know that the good guy is going to win in the end. I'm no longer scared of this movie. And it's no longer scary at all because I know how it ends. Listen, this morning, we do not fight for victory. We fight from victory. Here's the good news this morning. I can tell you this, I've read the back of this book, and we win. Isn't that good news this morning? Let's celebrate God and His faithfulness today. Would you bow your heads as we pray?